Welcome to Ocker Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice and the supporting sponsor of Ocker Farm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is, uh, I guess, our last full week of November. It is uh, Thanksgiving week here in the States, and we are going to get back to our... Uh, our landmarks and Onco Farm series. You know, I, I thought about doing a what I'm thankful for kind of mailbag thing, but like all the other podcasts are doing for Thanksgiving week. But you know what? We're an information-based podcast. Let's just get let's just get let's just get to it. Uh, so today we're going back 17 years to the clot study, uh, which was published in 2003 in the New England Journal of Medicine by Lee L E E Lee uh, and colleagues. This is a low molecular weight heparin. Uh, versus uh, a vitamin K antagonist for uh, treatment of uh, VTE in cancer penis, venous thromboembolism. They call it prevention and re- prevention of recurrent uh, venous thromboembolism, which I think is always a little misleading to folks. Uh, we're treating the VTE that they have, and we're going to treat it for a long period of time so that it doesn't come back. I always think of it as treatment because those are the treatment doses versus prophylactic doses. You throw around the word recurrent too often or prevent recurrent prevention, uh, it confuses folks. All right, so this was uh, published uh, in print in July of 2013, uh, which would have been between my P2 and P3 years of pharmacy school, uh, interestingly. Still living in an apartment life back then. Uh, so prior to this, you know, warfarin or a vitamin K antagonist um, in conjunction with uh, heparin, unfractionated heparin, low microweight heparin with a bridge to, to kind of long-term warfarin or vitamin K antagonist was how we treated uh, blood clots. And of course, this was problematic in cancer patients for a lot of reasons. I imagine uh, you, uh, your bone marrow transplant patients on an azole for antifungal treatment or prophylaxis, and then they have to be put on warfarin, although we have drug interaction issues. We have uh, very commonly patients receiving chemo. You know, the most common GI toxicity they would complain about today is not nausea or vomiting, which of course could affect uh, potentially absorption of the drug and diet but uh, dysquesia, dysquesia, or uh, however you say that word, but altered taste or lack of taste. And that, of course, is going to decrease oral intake and decrease oral vitamin K intake, which is going to increase the INR if you keep someone on a consistent dose of warfarin. Chemotherapy can be hepatotoxic, which can affect metabolism. Chemo can cause thrombocytopenia, which can increase the bleeding rates. Uh, Patients may need uh, a somewhat... Uh, urgent or emergent procedure like a, a new biopsy or kyphoplasty or who knows uh, that may require reversal of warfarin and then um, uh, and then restarting rebridging potentially so lots of issues uh, with with warfarin I'll also mention that in the background of this study some preclinical work and some clinical studies that came out actually after this suggesting that uh, well before this, there was actually some clinical trials, clinical research suggesting that maybe heparin had some anti-cancer benefits, and heparin by itself does have some anti-inflammatory properties. Uh, so there was always this this uh, interest going back that maybe uh, heparin would be effective, and you can find studies of heparin with chemo or low molecular weight heparin with chemo versus chemo alone, even in people without uh, without uh, a VTE, not to prevent VTE, but thinking there may. Uh, be some obviously prevention of VT, but also maybe some anti-cancer effect, which we know now uh, not to be the case. So this was a, a large study, about 650, 600 to 700 uh, patients with active cancer uh, with either symptomatic DVT or a PE 
or both. Now, active cancer excluded, it's a very important to pay attention to this definition, active cancer. Uh, excluded people with non-melanoma skin cancer. Uh, they had to have uh, received uh, cancer uh, treatment within the previous six months. That could be surgery, radiation, uh, or chemo, or recurrent metastatic cancer. And so the reason that this active cancer diagnosis is, is useful, because you could have somebody uh, considered to have active cancer that doesn't have active cancer. And what I mean by that is they had stage three colon cancer diagnosed uh, six months ago. Uh, and they got six months of Folfox, and now of adjuvant Folfox, they're disease-free, uh, and you know they have a VTE after a car ride or something like that. May not be cancer as a provoking factor. When we get to the the demographics, probably not a huge deal in this study. And they were randomized to six months of daltaparin uh, with a higher dose for the first month, and then a lower dose of daltaparin thereafter. Not how we traditionally dose enoxaparin, the the bread and butter low molecular heparin we use here in the states, which is just you know usually one mg per kg twice a day throughout the duration of treatment, or 1.5 mg per kg once daily is also an FDA approved treatment option. And then a bridge of daltaparin to warfarin uh, or acetacumarol, if they were in the Netherlands or uh, Spain, uh, with an INR target of 2.5 with a, a range of 2 to 3. Uh, and there were, uh, you know, weight-based dosing of daltaparin, either 200 uh, units per kg for that first month or 150 units per kg rounded to the nearest vial size. Uh, there were dose adjustments for thrombocytopenia, less than 50 platelets, uh, no, no drug, um, between 50 and 100,000 platelet counts, uh, they basically went one vial size down on the pre-filled daltaparin syringes. So they did this, with adultaparin, they don't round the dose, or they do round the dose for the nearest vial size, but they don't have people like squirt out a little bit of daltaparin, which sometimes is a common practice uh, with anoxaparin. Uh, then they came back to clinic, you know, uh, one week later, uh, one month later, three months later, six months later for follow-up. Uh, they don't describe the INR checking process here for the uh, the vitamin K antagonist group. I assume they would have used the chest guidelines at the time, which was increase the dose by 5 to 15% or 5 to 20% or decrease the dose uh, for INR that was uh, out of whack. But of course, the quality of that INR management or vitamin K antagonist management could vary. I would, I would vouch uh, and say if they had pharmacists that they would have had great care managing that. Uh, just based on my own experience working in, uh, in the Kumina clinics during training, uh, primary endpoint, recurrent VTE at six months. Secondary endpoints included uh, bleeding, of course, and major bleeding definition we are probably all used to, bleeding that caused death, bleeding in a critical site, so in the brain, around the spine, in the eyes, retroperitoneum or pericardial era, pericardial era uh, hemoglobin drop of two grams per deciliter or the need for two units of blood. That would be uh, our uh, major bleeding criteria. Uh, I won't go into the stats just for brevity's sake. It's a holiday week. Nobody wants to talk stats on a holiday week. Uh, but the stats look good. You can take my word for it. You can read the study yourself. Uh, patients were about 62, 63 in each group. Uh, a little bit more uh, female than male. So almost 50-50, but favoring females a little bit. Most of these patients, um, the vast majority were ECOG 1 and 2. Uh, which I think is pretty uh, representative of the cancer population in general. Uh, it wasn't just ECOG 0 and 1. ECOG 1 and 2 made up the bulk of this. Um, and uh, it's about 50-50 outpatient to inpatient. Uh, that's probably a relic of 2013, before the massive migration to seeing and treating many, many cancer patients in the outpatient area. 66%, um, two-thirds had metastatic disease. So these were folks with 
I mean, that tells you that they really did have active cancer. If you had a whole bunch of folks uh, in an active cancer study that had uh, were receiving adjuvant treatment, and that was their definition for active cancer, um, you know, those folks may not have as as big a clot burden or as sick. Uh, and 78% were on uh, antineoplastic treatment, uh, which could include surgery or radiation or chemo. Uh, and of course, going forward, uh, what we would love to see, or personally in all these studies is, uh, and we do see this in some of the DOAG versus uh, low molecular heparin studies that have come out in the last couple of years, is what were those treatments that they were on? Because that does make a difference if they're on a platinum-based regimen or a bezizumab regimen. Those could make differences based on the risk of VTE recurrence as well as uh, bleeding risk. Uh, so we had 338 in each arm total. So, so well over 600 patients. Um, I think 90% had solid tumors. So very few hematologic malignancy patients. But these are the top malignancy sites in rank. Number one: breast, colorectal, lung, genitourinary tract. So, so bladder cancer probably a lot. Maybe some renal cell carcinoma. Maybe some uh, then then uh, gynecologic. So probably ovarian cancer. Then pancreatic and brain. So pretty pretty representative. Uh, and I mentioned the INR goal was uh, was um, was two to three. Always important to look at in the study of a vitamin K antagonist. What was the percent of, of uh, time in range? And the average INR through the study was 2.5, which sounds great. Standard deviation of 0.75. So, so that means 68% of folks were between an INR of 3.25 and 2.75. Uh, so pretty wide range there. The INR in therapeutic range only 46% of time. Below range, 30%, and above range, 24%. In general, if you landmark other studies of vitamin K antagonist, you see time and range of warfarin somewhere around 60 to 65%. A little bit higher than uh, pharmacist-managed studies, from what I remember reviewing this literature uh, many years ago. So 46% of time in INR range is low, and that does fit the narrative of cancer patients and the changes in their diet and eating. Uh, and drug interactions potentially uh, that they are harder to keep in range uh, while while on uh, uh, treatment for their their cancer. Uh, again, the primary endpoint was uh, recurrent VTE. Uh, at the end of six months, it was nine percent uh, with daltaparin versus seventeen percent total, um, and that was the Kavanmeyer estimate. What they actually saw was eight percent versus fifteen point eight percent. So you can just kind of do the math there. That almost looks like a fifty percent. Uh, decrease in the risk, and we do see a hazard ratio of 0.48, so 52% decrease in risk at any given time of, v, of a VTE uh, coming back. Comes several 0.3 to 0.77. Um, of the, uh, there, so there were 53 total recurrent VTE in the vitamin K antagonist arm. Of those 53, 20 occurred when the INR was below two or subtherapeutic. Now, if you remove those, you're talking 8% versus 9.8% total. Now, of course, you don't do that. That's that's, that's part of warfarin, um, but it does appear that the, the big driving, um, one of the driving factors, not the driving factor in the, the low molecular weight heparin uh, superiority here uh, was not necessarily pharmacologic, but it was pharmacokinetic consistency because you reliably get the concentrations you know you're going to get and the anticoagulant effect you know you're going to get in a dose of a low molecular weight heparin that you do not get from warfarin because it has, uh, it's finicky. It's a fickle drug, all right? Uh, bleeding was not different. 6% with daltaparin versus 4% in the oral anticoagulant arm. Uh, any bleeding slightly more 
uh, with uh, the vitamin K antagonist, 14% versus 19%. Uh, neither of those were statistically significant, however. Again, that wasn't powered for that. Uh, I will point out that there was a post-protocol subgroup analysis. So this is an exploratory thing that should be considered hypothesis generating that did show um, that there was a mortality benefit in the metastatic arm in those patients who received daltaparin versus a vitamin K antagonist. Now that, and that came out a year or two later in the journal of Clinical Oncology. That publication, along with these hopes and dreams that heparins may have some anti-cancer effect, led to, in my opinion, a much quicker uptake and adoption of using low molecular heparin to treat uh, cancer-associated VTE. In fact, I um, uh, locally here in where we practice, this was. Uh, this was published by a colleague. I came in at the end of the project after the data was collected, looked at it, and helped write a little bit of the manuscript, um, published in JHOP, uh, that the cancer docs in here were much, much, much more likely to prescribe a low molecular heparin for cancer-associated VTE compared to the hospitalists uh, and generalists who still prescribed warfarin quite a bit. And this, is, this was at five to ten years after the publication of the CLOT trial. Of course, there were other studies that came out after the CLOT trial uh, that confirm this superiority of low molecular weight heparin versus uh, vitamin K antagonist for the treatment of cancer-associated VTE. So you may be asking, John, we you know we know we've always used these low molecular weight heparins, and now we have DOAX, and we've got uh, Hoskai VTE cancer, and great data with the Doxaban, and we've got Select D, and good data with Rivaroxaban, and we've got. Uh, Adam VTE cancer and, and a Pixaban looks good, you know, maybe maybe a little bit better, but certainly as good as low molecular heparin. Maybe a little bit more bleeding in the DOACs, but uh, you know, you can probably select out those patients and, and, and maybe preferentially not use DOACs in those with active uh, gastrointestinal and genital urinary cancers, uh, and a lot easier to do the DOAC. So uh, thanks for the history lesson, but do we need this? One thing that I think I do want to point out that maybe gets overlooked is even in the best arm here, in the delta parent arm, the risk of recurrent VTE was 8%. It wasn't 0%. These are difficult to treat clots for the aptly named clot studies. And this is a representative patient population, in my opinion, of what we see with cancer associated VTE. Not pure ECOG 0 folks or ECOG 1 and 2. They're mostly metastatic, they're almost all on treatment. Uh, these are, are VTEs that are hard to treat um, for, for a variety of reasons. And just because somebody's VTE comes back despite receiving adequate treatment, maybe doesn't mean you have to change treatment because that, that's just the underlying disease state. Uh, and you don't need to maybe worry about increasing the dose. It's just sometimes a tough to treat uh, you know, disease state. I just want everyone to, to appreciate that because that's a question we come to. Oh, they failed this drug, we have to use a different drug. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. We certainly don't have a ton of evidence um, at treating you know, recurrent VT after it's come back uh, a second time. So uh, I hope you all uh, have had or will have a happy Thanksgiving if you celebrate. And we will be back in the first week of December talking about something else. Until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.